Okay, Mark chapter 10. I probably should turn there if I'm going to read this passage, right? If you're able, would you stand with me as I read God's word? We're studying Mark 10, 13 through 31 in our series of God of the impossible. So verse 13 of Mark 10. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. The idea is pray over them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belong the children, the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or lands our children are lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. You may be seated. In our passage today, we are going to be focusing on verse 17 through verse 27. We're reading about a young man here who, who probably asked, I would say, the most significant question a person could ask. And that is in verse 17. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man was asking Jesus, how can a person live in the presence of God for eternity? I think you find this idea, this topic, if you want to say, throughout this passage. This passage is kind of about eternal life. How does a person have eternal life? You see in verse 14, Jesus brought up the topic with children around him. He said in verse 14, let the children or the infants come to me. Don't hinder them for to such belongs the children of God. In other words, people who are in heaven are those who are like infants who are receivers, right? Infants do nothing to provide provision. They just receive. And so he said in verse 15 that if you don't come to God as a receiver, like an infant, then you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, you look down in verse 17. There we see that he asked, the young man asked, how can I have eternal life? Verse 23, Jesus said it's hard to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is is actually a synonym for God and his presence. The kingdom of God deals with a person living in God's presence on this earth as his child and then in eternity forever with him. 
You can see in verse 24, Jesus said, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? In verse 26, the disciples asked, how can a person be saved? You kind of get the point. This is all about how do we have assurance that we will be with God now, or we are with God now, and we will be with him in the life to come. And you see in verse 26, the question is, how can we be saved? The idea of that is how can we be rescued from being cast out of his presence? Like, how do we know we're not going to be cast into hell, but we will be entering into his presence? How can we be saved from the punishment that we deserve? And then in verse 30, he ends by saying, there are certain people who will enter into eternal life. So throughout this passage is weaved this question about how a person has life with God. This young man wanted to know the answer. In fact, the disciples wanted to know the answer. They ask, how then can a person be saved? And I actually believe that every person in this world actually really wants to know the answer to this question. And I really believe that Jesus wants people to know the answer. You can come on in. Just take a seat. Where was I at? That person needs to know the answer. So maybe they can come in and take a seat and listen. I really believe that Jesus wants everyone to know the answer to this question. Notice it said that Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. He had care for him. And friend, I want you to know that the scriptures were written so that you can have assurance. You can know for certain today that you will be with God in eternity. This is one of my favorite passages to share with people. John 20, 31. These are written. The scriptures are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, present tense, life in his name. Today, I just want to walk through the teaching of Jesus. I just want to talk about what Jesus taught this man and these disciples. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the presence of God but through Jesus, but through me. And so I want to look at the scriptures and see there was a man who was going the wrong way. There were disciples who believed things that were false. And I guess I want to present this to you and ask you this question. Do you want to know the truth? Do you want to know if you're going the wrong way? In order to know the truth or to, to understand if you know the truth, you have to actually be willing to be wrong. If you're really seeking truth, you have to, be with, you have, to have the understanding that I might not be right about this. And so the question you have to answer, I think, is are you willing to be wrong? When I tell people the gospel, or I should say before I tell them the gospel, I actually like to ask them the question, what do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about heaven and hell? How do you believe a person gets to heaven? How do you, why does a person go to hell? I like to hear all their beliefs. And then I like to ask them the question, if you were wrong, would you want to know? And the reason I do that is I want to see, are they really seeking the truth? So let me ask you this question this morning. What do you believe? And if you were wrong, would you want to know? I'm going to have a moment where we just bow our heads and we talk to the Lord. I'm going to ask you in your heart, would you in here, if you are a person who genuinely seeks truth, will you just ask God, God, show me the truth this morning. Let's bow our heads and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to the word of God that is true. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable to tell us what's true and what's wrong, how to correct that wrong, and how to walk by faith and righteousness. And so I pray that you will help us in here to evaluate our beliefs upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was in Wisconsin, when we were in 2004, Dana and I were had been married for about a year, and... We were traveling down from Wisconsin to South Carolina, where I was going to start my job at Calvary Baptist Church in, in Simpsonville, South Carolina, where I was going to uh, work with the children there and um, become eventually become the children's pastor. 
And so we had a car that she drove. We had a U-Haul moving van that I drove with a car attached to it, the back of it, a 1991 Dodge Spirit. I loved that car, by the way. I wouldn't be surprised if it's still running today. Although I sold it to someone in South Carolina, so they probably had it sit in the front of their car on some blocks. But go to the South, and that's what you realize is reality. And we were about two hours away from home, from our new home. And we were in the mountains of North Carolina. And I w- back then, all I had was this old map, the, the old Randy McNally map. You remember what that is? And my little phone was, you know, just cheap little phone that hardly got cell reception because I was using, well, I shouldn't say the company, but back then they did not have good cell reception. I was going through the mountains, so you're kind of in and out. And I saw Highway 25, which was the road I was supposed to turn on. And sure enough, you know, I'm driving this truck and I see this map right there. And this, I remember the truck had some kind of problem with the lights. They wouldn't, they weren't bright enough, you know. So I'm trying to figure out, are they on or not, you know. And it's getting dark at night and... You can remember when, if you've ever been on a uh, trip like this and it starts getting dusk, it's hard to see. And so it, it said Highway 25. And so I thought, oh, well, this is it right here. So I, I got off. But what I didn't realize is the map I had was an old map. And there was a Highway 25. And there was also an old Highway 25. Don't you love when people do that, right? Well, I got off on old Highway 25 not realizing it. And so Dana's following me and we're going down and starting to wind around these mountain passes. And I'm getting nervous because I've not done this kind of thing before. And I'm, my wife's behind me. I don't know where I'm going. It's dark. I'm trying to follow this map. My lights aren't working. And my, I looked at my phone. This is before the laws that you couldn't talk on your phone. And I picked it up and I saw I had one bar left. And I thought, you know, this is my call. I'm just going to call my dad and say, help me know where I'm at. He's he made that trip so many times. So I called him up and I said, dad, I don't know where I'm at. I'm somewhere on 25. And, but I'm going around these passes. I actually think I might drive off the road. And he said to me, turn around and go back to the interstate. (laughs) Just follow the interstate. Just go back and turn around. And so I found a place, a little driveway that I could do that, could do a U-turn. And I turned around and it was probably the best decision I made because I think I probably saved my life and my wife's life because it was, it was going a direction that was very, very difficult. And later on, a couple of years later, I actually went that path. And I thought, oh, if I would have taken a truck around this, I would not have made it. And what I really did at that moment was I made a decision to repent. In other words, I made a decision that I was going the wrong way and I needed to turn around and go the right way, a different direction, the direction that was one of safety. So today we're going to be talking about in some sense, repentance. And the idea of repentance is that you're, you recognize that what you're thinking, what you believe, how you're living, it's, it's the wrong direction, and you're going to follow Christ. And so we meet a man in our story today who needed to repent. He was believing and thinking things that were wrong and going the wrong direction in life, and Jesus approaches him, and Jesus calls him to repent and believe in Jesus. Now, if you knew this man... You might not guess this man's life was headed the wrong direction. This man seemed to have everything going for him. In Matthew's parallel account, it says that this man was young. So maybe he was in his 20s or 30s. That's what I consider young. Some of you think I'm young, but that's young, 20s to 30s. How about Luke? Luke says that he was a a leader or I should say a ruler. Some Bible scholars believe that he was probably some kind of religious ruler, probably in a synagogue somewhere. In every account, he's wealthy, he's rich. And so all three uh, or three of the gospel accounts speak of this story. So here you have a man who had achieved everything a young Jewish man could desire. He had wealth, which, which for the Jewish people, if you had wealth, it was a sign from God, in their mind, that God had favor upon you. That God liked you, which... Is not true. It's not a sign from God that you have some kind of special favor from God. And, and I would say they taught it back then that way. And actually some preachers still teach that today. You know, you do this, this, and this, and God will give you wealth. And it's a sign that God likes you. You have his favor. That's, that's not true. That's false. It's a deceptive lie. You're not accepted before God because of what you own or any status that you have. But this man, he seemed to have life together in his exterior. It seemed like, wow, this man's religious. This man's 
This man is moral. In fact, this man even proclaimed his own morality. He said, I've kept all the commands from my youth. And so externally, this man seemed to have it all together. And on on top of that, he was passionate. Look at verse 17. He runs to Jesus. He kneels before Jesus and he asks Jesus. He's looking for the answer to life in Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. And most people would think that this man is going the right direction in life. Like here's a man who's got morality. He's got religiosity. He's got sincerity. And he's even coming to Jesus. Now think about it. If we had a man like this coming to our church service. He was wealthy and he was from our community. And this man comes in here and says, man, I live a good life. I give to the poor. You know, I I do a lot of really good things. I'm a good person. I have whatever... uh, denominational affiliation that you like and then he comes up here and he says man i want to follow jesus what would we say we'd be like yes right but what's interesting is jesus actually responds differently i think it's partly because jesus can see the guy's heart right he knows what's going on in his heart he knows what questions need to be asked but jesus response to this man is shocking It shocked everybody there. It shocked him. Look at verse 22. The Bible says that he was disheartened by the saying or what Jesus said to him. The word disheartened carries the idea of an emotional blow of shock that results in sadness. So this man was not expecting Jesus to respond this way. Look at verse 24. The disciples ask, or disciples hear that it's impossible for a person to gain eternal life by their own works. And, and they, it says, and the disciples were amazed. They were shocked at his words. Verse 26 says the disciples were exceedingly astonished at Jesus' teaching. What was so shocking about what Jesus was saying? It was what Jesus was teaching them. Well, how he responded and what Jesus taught was this. It's impossible for a person like this man to get to heaven. It's impossible really for any person to get to heaven by human means. And everyone listening was aghast. Like this is, this is not how we think over the past uh, number of weeks. The Lord just brought people into my life We've been able to talk to about the gospel. When we were at Sing Conference, we were in an Uber car with a couple guys, and we were able to share the gospel with them. We had one guy who was Muslim, one guy who was Buddhist, another guy whose dad was a pastor of a Lutheran church when he was growing up. In the past uh, week and a half, I've been able to talk to two people and see me here who uh, said that one time they were Catholic. They still are Catholic, but they don't go to the Catholic church. It's interesting. All these people that we talked to had One thing in common, they all believed that they could do something to earn God's favor. Each one of these people expressed that they believed that they could get to heaven by doing something. And they had their different ways. In fact, one guy said, well, you know, I think everyone has their different ways to God, but they all get there eventually, right? That's a common belief people have. And each of them were shocked to hear that we believe the Bible has a different opinion. That actually there's nothing you can do to gain favor with God. There's nothing you can do to get to heaven by your own works. In fact, look down in verse 26. You see the disciples are shocked. They ask who can be saved. And Jesus taught this. He looked at them and he said in verse 27, With man it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Eternal life is impossible by human effort, effort, but it's possible with Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at three shocking facts about the impossibility of having eternal life. And we're looking at point number two this week. And we believe at Lighthouse, we believe the Bible teaches that Jesus powerful work of salvation takes place when a person approaches God as a receiver. That's the first point. He turns from himself in his own way and repents, and he trusts in Jesus Christ alone. That's the second and third points. 
And of course, we learned last week that we must approach Jesus as receivers, as ones who have done, do nothing and provide nothing for our eternal salvation. And we come to him in repentance and faith. And so I believe verses 17, if you look at verse 17 through 22, I believe that's speaking about repentance. And then verses 23 through 31, Jesus speaks about repentance and then faith. So in this passage, we see Jesus' call to follow him. And Jesus' call is one response with two parts. So it's following Jesus is one response with two parts. One part is repentance. That's turning from your ways and your beliefs. And then it's faith. And that's turning to Jesus Christ and trusting and depending upon his spiritual provision. I think about it this way. If I go into my house and I see my children playing with some toys there or doing something in the house, I'll tell them, hey, we're going to go somewhere. So I want you guys to get in the car. Obedience really has, has two parts, but it's one response, right? You're to obey. That means that you're going to first stop what you're doing, and then you're going to probably get your shoes on. If it's one of the boys, get your shirt on, and then go get in the car, and then we're going to go, right? In other words, it's one response. Yes, I'll do that. But it's two parts. It's stopping what you're doing and starting to do what we have asked you to do. And it's the same way in coming to Christ, that we must come to Christ and follow him. And that means we stop going our own direction and then we follow him. And the story of the rich man here is one of a man who was actually not willing to repent. He wanted eternal life. He even wanted Jesus in some way, but he was holding on to his own way, his own beliefs, his own ideas. And he tried to have both. And Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. So what did this man need to turn from? What do he need to repent of? Well, first, we're going to see he needed to repent of his sin. Repent of his sin. Look in verse 17. The Bible says, verse 18, Jesus responded to his question by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So this young man declared that Jesus was a good teacher. And Jesus responded by questioning his title that he gives to him. Now, Jewish rabbis, they would not have called someone good flippantly. Because they understood the Bible teaches actually there's only one being who truly is morally upright, who truly is good, and that is God. Psalm 119, 68 says, you, speaking of God, you are good and you do good. And in contrast to that, the Psalms also teach that we are not good. We are corrupt. We do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Good. So there's a contrast between God who is good, who does good, between us who are not good and don't do good. And so Jesus was pointing this contrast out. And it's interesting how he did it. He is called the good teacher. And he says, wait a second, you're calling me good. Don't you realize the Bible teaches there's only one that's good? And notice Jesus does not reject the title here. I think actually what he's doing, he's actually receiving the title of goodness, which means what? He's receiving the title of deity. Yes, I am good. I am God. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so here is a sinful man kneeling before the holy, perfect, good God and human flesh and think of that contrast and Jesus to highlight the man's sin and to highlight God's goodness. Look at verse 19. He quotes the the commandments of Moses from Exodus chapter 20. He says, you know, the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, why did Jesus quote the 10 or some of the Ten Commandments here. Well, the purpose of God's commandments, God's laws, are to reveal to us his goodness in our sin. That's really the purpose of it. Now you think, what? The law, a law, or laws, reveal the character of the law giver. Think about it this way. 
we have laws in our country for how children are to be strapped in a car. Now, when I was growing up, maybe we had those laws and we didn't abide by them, but we had a, we had a car that, uh, I'm trying to think of what kind of car it was, but it had the seats that went backwards. What was that? What were those station wagons called? But they had a name. I can't remember what they were. But did anyone have a station wagon back in that day? Okay. I don't ever remember wearing a seatbelt in that station wagon. But you know what? We actually, we actually have laws today to strap our kids. And why is that? Like, why would we strap our kids in these little seats, you know, that are, and if they go out of date, they actually have an expiration date on the back of them. <laughs> like, you look in the back and you can't use them anymore if they're past the expiration date. Because we what? We value our children. So we, we have laws, and the laws reveal the character and the values of the law givers. You could say it this way. When I go to camp, I explain this like this to kids. I say, kids, if, if we at camp said every night, one of the rules is every person gets a piece of chocolate, would that be a good rule? Yeah. And what, would, what does that reveal about the law giver then? He likes chocolate, right? And so when we look at God's laws, which, what we have to remember is that God's laws reveal who he is. So the first four commands reveal the goodness of God and how it relates to him. The last six commands reveal the goodness of God and how it relates to people. So think about God's laws. For instance, what's the first one that he mentions there? Do not murder. So what does this reveal about God's values? God loves people, right? He created Man and woman in his image. He loves people. And he doesn't want us to hurt people. And the most extreme way you could hurt someone is what? To end their life. And so the command there, therefore, reveals God's heart that he actually wants us to love people. And so and Jesus actually took it a step further. And he says, it's, it's not only the extreme end of killing someone, but actually you can break this command if you actually have sinful anger and hatred in your heart towards someone else. Or think about the command, the next command there, do not commit adultery. What does this reveal about God? It reveals that God values faithfulness, right? God values the marriage covenant. So if you seek sexual fulfillment outside of marriage, you break this covenant. And Jesus said it's not just breaking the covenant of marriage. Actually, even if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you're breaking this commandment in your heart. And why is that? Because God values purity and faithfulness. And so as you look through these laws listed, you should see God's goodness, but also you should see that you are a sinful person. So just think about it. Do not murder. God loves people. Do you love people? Do you love even your enemies? Are you bitter in your heart towards someone right now? Do not commit adultery. God values faithfulness. Are you faithful in your thoughts of purity? Do not steal. God is the good giver. Everything you have comes from him. But do you take things that aren't yours and keep it for yourself? Do not lie. God is a God of truth. But do you tell lies to try to get your way and manipulate people? God says, do not defraud or, or don't covet your neighbor's stuff. God is the one who provides for you. Do you look at people's stuff and covet it? And are you discontent with what God has given you? Honor your father and mother. God values authority. He has put authority in your life as his wonderful, good gift for you. But do you buck at authority and dishonor them? So do you see how, see how it reveals God's goodness, but also it reveals your sin? This man, when he heard these laws, he should have fallen before Jesus in repentance and cried out how unworthy he was. But he actually does the opposite. Look at verse 20. You can see him in his mind checking off all these. Yeah, I'm pretty good in all these things. And he says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. You see, this man was not willing to see his sin. And therefore, he could not repent of his sin. And what Jesus was doing right here was Jesus was trying to reveal to him his wicked, sinful heart. And you can't repent unless you see your sin. If you ask the average person, or if I were to ask you in here today, if I were to say, are you a good person? What do you think the average person would say? They'd say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Just like this man right here. I've kept God's laws. I think God, and a lot of times people go like this. They go, oh, yeah, compared to everyone else, I'm pretty good. I mean, look at everyone else around me. 
Some people even look, look at the church, a bunch of hypocrites in there. And it's like, there are, you're right. There's a lot of sinful people around you. But how about you compare yourself with God? In fact, it's interesting in Luke, Luke tells the same story of, of the rich young ruler here. Before that, he includes another story that probably happened on the same day that Jesus was teaching on this. And this was a story about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Bible actually says something very interesting. It says that he told this parable to, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So there are people that were standing around there and Jesus was trying to get the point across. It's impossible for you to trust in your own goodness to gain you any favor before God. And so he tells a story to, to help illustrate this. And he says there are two people. There was one who was a religious Pharisee and he goes into the temple and he goes to pray and he stands right down front. And he lifts his hands up to heaven. He looks up to God and this man prays thus. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men glancing over the room and seeing the other man over there who was a IRS agent that was ripping everybody off. He was a tax collector. And he says, not like the extortioners over there, the unjust over there, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If you didn't notice him earlier, Jesus, he's right over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes that I, of all that I possess. I am actually a really good person. And so comparing himself to other people, he saw himself as good. And unfortunately, he wasn't comparing himself to God. Because if he really understood how holy God was, what would this man do? He would fall down in repentance before God. But the tax collector stood far off from what they thought was the presence of God. And he wouldn't even actually lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his chest and he said, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. So he recognized his sin. He recognized his sin and he deserved God's punishment and said, God, please be merciful. And Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Which person did God forgive and give life to? Was the man who declared his own goodness? was the man who declared he's a sinner. And so it's impossible to have eternal life unless you repent from your sin and your self-righteous efforts. That's the second point, your self-righteous efforts. Look at the question in verse 17. Notice how he asks the question. What must I do? To inherit eternal life. I think it's a pretty significant verb in there. What are the good deeds that earn me eternal life? I mean, you can kind of hear the self-dependence in this man's question. I mean, maybe he gained his wealth by working for it. Most people do. Maybe he gained his power, his position of authority by working for it. Many people do. And now he wanted to earn something else. How do I earn my way into heaven? So what work do I need to do? How much money should I give? What is it that I must do to have hope for eternal life? I'm morally upright. I, I have riches that prove I'm accepted before God. And notice how Jesus responds to him. Verse 21. Jesus looking at him. Now, can you just imagine that? Jesus looking at this man. Here's a man who actually in the end of the day does not trust the Lord. But notice how Jesus looks at him. Looking at him, loved him. Now that should tell us about how we should view people, right? Like sometimes we can be very scornful and we can look down on people who aren't believing in Christ and following Christ. In fact, we can even speak negatively about them in our culture. Can you believe those people who live in Sacramento? <laughs> I don't know why I picked that city out. Well, maybe I do. But no, Jesus actually looked at him and he what? He loved him. And he said, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, Jesus was not saying salvation is found in ascetic living or by giving your money to the poor. He was not saying poor people go to heaven and rich people don't. Or if you give your money to the poor, you'll go to heaven. But Jesus, Jesus was teaching this, 
that it is impossible for you to gain eternal life with things you own and by the works you do. It's impossible for you to gain eternal life with the things you own and by the works you do. And Jesus' call here was for this man to repent and turn from trusting in those things and the things he owns and the things he does and believe and follow Jesus. And notice how he calls him to follow him. Jesus says in verse 21, one thing you lack. Now think about that. Look at that that verse right there. That seems kind of odd because he doesn't list one thing. He lists a lot of things. Go, sell, give, come, follow. So what's, what's the one thing? Well, the one thing is to follow Jesus. Again, it's one response, following Jesus. But following him means you repent of your own way. So you recognize your sin, and that means you also give up the faith that you have in what you believe in, what you're trusting to save you. And what was it this man, I would say, I'd say this way, what was his most egregious or maybe most open sin that he had? I think probably it was his love for money. It was his greed. And that's probably why Jesus says this to him right now. This is what you need to repent of. This is what you need to give up in your life. Jesus' command to sell all revealed this man loved money more than he loved God. And true repentance for this man would be confessing his sin of greed and wanting Jesus more than his sin and wanting Jesus more than his self-righteous works. So to show where your heart truly is, Jesus says, okay, give it all up and follow me. And the truth was this man wanted his way. He wanted his earthly efforts. He wanted his earthly delights more than he wanted Jesus. Now, he wanted both, didn't he? Can I, can I have Jesus and all this too? What Jesus says here is, that is not how it works. I think we as Americans are kind of like that. You know, can I have both these things? <laughs> like, I have Jesus and I can just still live my life however I want to. That's not how it works. That he, that's Jesus, died for all, that those who live should not live for themselves, but him who died for them and rose again. The idea is Jesus came to die to save you from your selfish life, not to add Jesus to your selfish life. Titus 3, 5. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves us. By the washing and of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So look at his response in verse 22. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And his lack of repentance demonstrated that he was not willing to come to Christ like a child, like an infant. This rich man wanted to boast. He wanted to trust in his own efforts. And so he goes away sorrowful. The man was sad to hear that following Jesus meant he had to turn from his own sin, his own religious efforts but essentially, Jesus was saying, sorry, you can't have your way and have me as well. Give up your life, turn to me, and be saved. Now, some people might look at this and think, wow, that wasn't, I thought Jesus was love. I thought Jesus was loving. That's not very nice of him to turn this guy away and basically say, sorry, buddy, you can't be saved. You can't be in God's presence. Is, isn't Jesus love? Yeah, actually, he is. So people too level that, right, and say, well, Jesus is love. But listen, love does not excuse sin or self-righteousness. Love does not say, oh, it's okay if you're self-righteous or if you're trusting yourself. It's no big, You're going to go to heaven anyways. In fact, that's not what Jesus does. But love does do this. Love tells the truth. And so when Jesus says, the Bible says in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And then what did he do? He said to him, Jesus, listen, he really did love this man. And love sent Jesus to the earth to live as the God-man. Love brought him to this man so he could hear the truth. Love, in a few moments from this time in, in the scriptures here, would cause Jesus to be tortured for his sin. Love compelled Jesus to tell this man the truth. Jesus loved him. But this man chose not to repent and believe. He chose not to love Jesus back by following him. 
The disciples saw this. They were shocked. Look down in verse 25. Verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? And he says this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I went to my daughter's bedroom, and she has a sewing uh, kit there. And so I went and got one of these needles out. These things are dangerous, by the way. I poked myself this morning. But, you know, I was looking at this needle right here. And a lot of people try to explain this verse away by saying, oh, there was some kind of hole or some kind of door in Jerusalem. That's actually not true. It's actually a, an illustration of the impossibility of something. And I, I wonder, I don't, we don't know this, but I wonder if there maybe was a camel nearby or something. And so Jesus just says, hey, illustration, people. It's actually easier, easier for a camel to go through this needle than for a person to go to heaven, which basically means what? It's impossible. Is it possible for a camel to go through this? No, it's not. And so the disciples were shocked, and Jesus then piles on, because they say, who can be saved? Look what he says in verse 27. Jesus said, with men, it's impossible. Let's stop right there. Like, let that sink in. With men and women, with people, with humans, it's impossible. Like, it is Remember, it is impossible to save yourself. No pastor can pray for you to guarantee that you're going to be saved. You cannot be good enough to be saved. With humans, it is impossible. And glory be to God, he didn't stop right there. Because he says, and think about just how Jesus says this. He just encountered a man who rejected him. Maybe he had tears in his eyes as he looked at them and goes, Guys, with men it's impossible. But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Now, sometimes people take this verse and they say, oh, I'm going to claim this verse because I have a job that I need. And it's impossible for me to get that job. Can I tell you, that's a bad application of this verse right here. Because actually, it's maybe unlikely you'll get the job, but not impossible. Or sometimes people even think of something like, Maybe they don't have children. They want children. It's like, it's impossible for me to have children. So I'm going to claim this verse right here. And Well, again, it might be extremely difficult or maybe unlikely, but not impossible. Impossible is a camel going through an eye of a needle. Impossible is me climbing up to Rocky Peak, uh, overlooking the valley here, and jumping off and actually being able to fly through the sky 12 miles and land on the other side of the valley. Right? That's actually impossible. And what Jesus is talking about here is the impossibility of a person going to heaven by his own works. And he says, it's actually impossible. And we need to let that sink in. That There's nothing that you can do to earn acceptance and grace with God. Many times after I, uh, or when I'm talking to my children about something that maybe they're struggling with or something that happened in the home, I'll kind of talk about this and, and this way. And let's say someone is maybe... This does happen in a pastor's house. Maybe someone's fighting in the house. Someone says something mean about someone else or hits someone else or whatever. And I'll sit him on the couch there or sit him in our bedroom and we'll talk about what happened. And, and we'll talk through, you know, you should love this person. And, you know, and how you respond to this person reveals how you love God and don't love God. And, and so we talk about that. And, and then sometimes I get to the place where I say to the kids, I say, you know, tomorrow you should love your brother or sister. But you know what? It's not even possible. Can't do it. They just kind of let it sit there. Now, by now, they do this kind of thing. I know, Dad. You know? But at first, it was kind of fun. Because then they're like, what? It's not possible? Because seriously, let that sink in. Like, it's actually not possible. Like, if you tell someone, you know what? You're struggling with this. Tomorrow morning, got to get up. Do a better job. Nope, it's not possible. Can't do it. You can't have spiritual victory on your own. And so what I tell them then is this, what? It's only possible if you trust God to give you the strength to do the impossible. It's only possible if God's power is working through you. So how is it possible that God can do something impossible? Well, Jesus did what was impossible for you. 
He lived a perfect life. That's impossible for you to do. Jesus did what was impossible for you. He was punished with hell on the cross. Jesus did what was impossible for you. He gained victory over death with resurrection. Jesus did what was impossible for you. He can forgive your sins and give you the gift of adoption. You can be his child. He can give you the gift of life forever in his presence. That impossible work we call salvation. Salvation. He saves us. In fact, one of my favorite verses is 2 Timothy 1.9. Who saved us? Who saved us and called us with a holy calling? Not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. He gave us in Christ. Listen, if you are in here today and you think in your mind, there's something I have to do in order for God to like me. There's something I have to do in order to gain favor with God so I can be with God. Or maybe if I do these things, listen, you need to repent of thinking that way. In other words, say, that's the wrong way to think. That's the wrong direction of life. Maybe you're in here and you're holding on to your sin. You say, I actually really like my sin. And I want my sin in Jesus too. It doesn't work that way. You have to turn and follow Jesus Christ. Let me end with this story. There was two brothers, John and Charles. And this was in the 18th century, John and Charles Wesley. They went to Oxford, pretty smart guys. And they decided when they're Oxford, they're like, you know what? There's a lot of vices out there for young men. There's a lot of bad things that could happen. So what we're going to do is we're going to form a club. It's going to be called the Holy Club. And we're going to give accountability to each other. And we're going to read the Bible together. We're going to pray together. We're going to do charitable works together. And we're going to just really be holy. So that's what they did. But they actually found in their heart that they, that they were able to be holy. And they started listening to a man that was a Moravian preacher named Peter in London. And one day Peter was preaching the gospel. The gospel of faith in Jesus Christ, not of your works. And as these guys listened to this, they started thinking about what Peter was teaching. And so Peter one day went up to Charles after one of these messages and said, do you hope to be saved, Charles? And Charles replied, I do. Peter said, well, what reason do you hope in it? And Charles said, because I've done my best to serve God. And Peter put his head down, shook his head. He said, no. And he walked away. And Charles was offended by that. He wrote in his journal, how unloving, what are not my endeavors sufficient ground of hope? Would he rob me of my endeavors? I have nothing else to trust in then. So he was an unbeliever, right? Well, he was an unbeliever in Jesus. He was believing in himself. Charles and John Wesley came over to America, to Georgia, the state. They went to the Indians. They began to serve them and help them and give them the gospel or I should say this, they would serve him and tell him about Jesus. They didn't really give him the gospel because they didn't know the gospel themselves. Tell them about Jesus, try to do holy works there. They got in a boat, came back to America. And on their way back, John wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who shall convert me? These guys still felt the weight of their sin. They still were trusting in their own righteousness, their own works to gain favor with God. And then... On May 21st, in 1738, Charles Wesley was reading the book of Galatians. Next to it, he had a commentary by Martin Luther on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And as he read the book of Galatians, he realized that he could do nothing to save his soul. And he cried out to Jesus, repented of his own ideas, his own way, his own sin, and he trusted in Jesus Christ. Three days later, May 24, 1738, John, his brother, was reading the book of Romans. And he had next to him Martin Luther's uh, commentary. And this is what John wrote. At that moment, as I was reading that, that book of Romans, I felt like I did finally trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation and assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. You see, just because you're a religious person doesn't mean you're on your way to heaven. 
you need God to do an impossible work of salvation in you and for you. Let's pray. As you bow your head before the presence of God, maybe you're a person in here and you say, you know what? I do not believe the way that you taught this morning, but I see that I need to turn to Jesus right where you're sitting in your seat. You can cry out to the Lord. You don't need any special conversation, although we would love to talk to you. Just cry out to the Lord and say, I can't do it. Can't do it, Lord. It's impossible. And God, I turn to your son, Jesus Christ, save my soul. And he promises he will save you. Maybe you're a believer in here and you say, I know the truth. I know this. I know what you're talking about. I believe it. I'm seeking to live that. But man, I, I'm struggling with some sin and I've been just using human means, my own methods to follow Christ. And I, I, need, I need to trust in the Lord's power, not my own. You can as well come before the Lord in prayer. Confess that to him. And then seek the power of Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful that Jesus came to this world and he preached the truth. I'm thankful that he illustrated it for us so we can understand as simple humans through stories and through illustrations. We can understand the truth that there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that no work that we can do that can gain favor in your sight. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's according to your mercy that you save us. It's for by grace that we're saved through faith. And it's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of our works, lest we should boast. And so God, I'm so thankful for the gift that you give. And I pray for those in here in this room. Maybe there's a few people in this room who are struggling right now and fighting you. And oh, Holy Spirit, may you break through to their heart and may they surrender their hearts to you. I pray for us as a church. We can't do the Christian life on our own. Like, how foolish are we? It's like the Galatians. How foolish, Galatians, you who, who started in faith in Christ, why you think you're going to do the Christian life by your works? No. God, how foolish for me to think that way and for us. And so help us as a church not to look to our own means Help us to look to the Holy Spirit and to the word of God, the grace that you provide for us. We have, we have an impossible task. That's a task to tell people about Christ and see their souls converted. And again, we can't do it on our own. We are not able to save people. But by your power, we can give them the gospel. And by your power, you can save them. As we think about the city we're a few, just a few people in this room. But there are many around us who need Christ. And God, would you give our church a love for people? Give us a love for people like Jesus had. May we look at people and love them and think, how can I give the gospel to them so they can see the truth? Oh God, give us that love. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.